0: The frontier became an aching presence he could feel but could not define, a magnetic force pulling him inexorably towards something he had heard about but never seen. A preacher on a sway backed mule rode his ferry one day. He asked him if he knew God's mission for him in life. Without pause, he answered, Go to the Rockies. Michael Punkey from his book, The Revenant. and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. Dead and Gone in Wyoming is presented by Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, for 10Cast and County10.com. A quick listener note before we get started, this podcast features descriptions of murder, disappearance, and violence. Listener discretion for those who might be especially sensitive to such subject matter is advised. Coming up on this month's episode, a 19-year-old on a cross-country road trip from California to Massachusetts makes it as far as Rock Springs, where his motorcycle and other possessions were found days later, but he never has been. But first, a woman on an overland journey of her own through a series of almost unbelievable misfortunes finds herself exactly in the wrong place at the wrong time. Part 1 As Seen on TV By the time Jedediah Smith was 25 years old, he'd already had one of his ears and most of his scalp ripped off by a grizzly bear. This had been the result of a decision that Smith made a year earlier, in 1822, when he responded to a newspaper advertisement calling for a young man willing to explore the American frontier. Months later, Jedediah found himself near death. In the Wyoming Territory. But he was not by himself. Smith survived the bear attack, and the rest of the 10 men group that he was with began in the following days to bring Smith back to health. Approximately then, the entire party was beset by Indian attack, which killed every single member of the party except Jedediah Smith, who was in a position to hide because he'd been recouping from the bear attack separately away from the rest of the group but now he was alone. Lore states that Jedediah Smith managed to survive alone on scrounged bear meat and other meager rations until he was well enough to travel again. By the end of that year, Smith met up with a fellow trapper, Thomas Fitzpatrick, and together the two led a crew to the Rocky Mountain Rendezvous. It was first held in 1825 in McKinnon, then to be held in Lander, and then Riverton a few years later. Their travels to the rendezvous took the party through the Sweetwater River Valley, which meanders through the high desert east to North Platte and eventually the Mississippi River. It was a safe place for them to spend that winter. Smith would move on from Wyoming. He eventually explored much of the American West from Canada to California before his death at age 32. But Smith and Fitzpatrick left their impression on Wyoming's history when on July 4, 1824, they cached some of their furs under a dome of rock for safekeeping. We know it today as Independence Rock. It later became a key landmark along the Oregon and Mormon and California immigrant trails used by the wagon trains that would head west a few decades later. Taking its name from the river that Smith and Fitzpatrick pioneered for American use, Sweetwater County was created 40 years later, on December 17, 1867. It is by area the largest county in the state and one of the largest counties in the country, and much of the landscape of Sweetwater County remains unchanged from when it was pioneered by Smith, Fitzpatrick, and others. The land has been bought and sold and developed in some places, but it remains sparse. Today, the ranch roads and dirt tracks that emanate from Highway 30 northeast of Granger seem an endless network of connected cul-de-sac of open space. There are dozens of those roads, and they're all unpaved. They exist only to connect water towers and small storage buildings and other farm and ranch structures to one another, and those roads are rarely used by anybody. In fact, most of that land is all but uninhabited year-round, between the tiny town of Granger, population 139, and the Green River and Sitskadi National Wildlife Refuge in the state southwest, you'll be lucky to encounter a soul. But that's where Christine was, sitting on her motorcycle, smiling for the camera. In the photo, the Wyoming sky above her is blue and endless. The shirt is a shade of yellow that few years outside of 1977 would find fashionable as is the style of her dark brown hair. And the string flip-flops are pink, but somehow don't seem out of place as she sits on top of a two-tone, blue-and-white Kawasaki H1 motorcycle. The shirt and the hairstyle aside, Christine is gorgeous. And the word that comes to mind is basking. This is a photo of Christine basking in the sunshine of a beautiful Wyoming day. She's basking in adventure, too, having left Texas earlier in the summer to head for Montana along with her boyfriend, where they plan to pan for gold. She seems weightless, and maybe this is how Christine manages to pull off the cycle and sandals look. She's free. And she's pregnant. Six months so at the time of the photo. As she's smiling for the camera, Christine is also looking forward to being a mother but she hadn't settled down in the months since learning the news. Christine never settles down. She planned to have the baby in Montana, but her family expected she'd come back to Texas eventually. She never stayed in one place for long anyway. It was the journey, the adventure. Where to or where from didn't matter as much to Christine Thornton, and that's exactly the person that we see in this picture. Almost 40 years later, Police would use that same photo in an attempt to locate her skeletal remains, matching rocks and bushes in the photo to the vast landscape, if you can imagine doing such a thing. Because that 1977 photo of Christine Thornton basking in the late summer sunshine is the last time anyone ever saw her. And the man behind the camera was a serial killer. Hollywood, California, the dating capital of the world. If you're old enough to remember it, you know that to be true from the classic TV show The Dating Game. Almost exactly one year after Christine Thornton disappeared near Rock Springs, Wyoming, the man who murdered her was seated alongside two other eligible bachelors on a Hollywood TV set. The lights dimmed. The cameras rolled. The applause sign lights up, and the audience obliges. From Hollywood, the dating capital of the world, it's The Dating Game. Here's the star of our show, your host, Jim Black. Hey! Thank you. And the stage turns to reveal the silhouette of three men. Well, let's see. Bachelor number one is a successful photographer who got his start when his father found him in the dark room at the age of 13, fully developed. <laughs> Between takes, he might find him skydiving or motorcycling. Please welcome Rodney Alcala. Rod, welcome. None of the audience across America watching at home that night could have known that the successful photographer contestant number one had strangled at least three women in the two years before, and their bodies were beginning to turn up across Southern California just days before his game show appearance. In fact a 31-year-old woman named Charlotte Lamb was found raped and strangled in the laundry room of her El Segundo apartment complex. The bodies of two more of Contestant number 1's victims, 27-year-old Georgia Wickstead and 18-year-old Jill Barkham, had already been found. But the body of Christine Thornton was still back in Wyoming. And so remote is that part of Sweetwater County, Wyoming, that her remains wouldn't be found for another five years. By then, they were unidentifiable, victim and killer unknown. Christine's bones were buried in an unmarked Rock Springs grave. In the meantime, back on national TV, a young teacher named Cheryl claimed her prize. I'm going to ask you a question. Will that date be bachelor number one, bachelor number two, or bachelor number three? Who gets the dates? Well, I like bananas, so I'll take one. Number one. That's your number one. All right. Perhaps the unluckiest game show winner in history, Cheryl Bradshaw won a day of tennis and an evening at a local theme park with a serial killer. She refused to go on the date, saying she found Rodney Alcala too creepy. Rodney Alcala was born Rodrigo Juarez alcala Alcala-Bucor in 1943. He spent most of his childhood in Texas, until his grandmother became ill. She wanted to return to Mexico, and she brought eight-year-old Rodney with her. But by middle school, Rodney had returned to the United States. He attended school in Los Angeles and graduated from Montebello High School in 1960. After graduation, Alcala joined the Army and trained as a paratrooper. While stationed in North Carolina, his father passed away suddenly. And this seems to have been a turning point in his later development, because soon after, Alcala showed up unexpectedly at his mother's front door. He said he planned to go AWOL. She convinced her son to return to the Army, but Alcala was soon after medically discharged for having what was termed a nervous breakdown. In 1968, when Rodney Alcala was 25, he raped and attempted to kill an 8-year-old girl in his LA apartment complex alcala managed to escape as police were responding to the scene but his neighbors identified him now a wanted man he fled east alcala remained on the lam for 3 years using an alias he enrolled in classes at new york university and became a counselor at a drama camp in new hampshire this is also when alcala finished what he'd started in california posing as a photographer He raped and murdered 23-year-old Cornelia Crilly in her apartment in Manhattan. Unfortunately for Alcala, though, one of California's detectives, who had worked the rape of the 8-year-old victim years before, had finally managed to convince the FBI to add Alcala to their Top 10 Most Wanted list. This is how he was recognized in New Hampshire, and in 1971, he was arrested and charged with the sexual assault of a minor but authorities had no idea he'd already killed at least one woman as well. In 1974, three years after his arrest for the rape of an eight-year-old girl, Rodney Alcala was released on good behavior. He kidnapped a 13-year-old girl in Huntington Beach, California, just two months later. That victim was not harmed, but for the charge of kidnapping a minor, Alcala was sentenced and served another three years. He was released on parole in 1977 after being pronounced re-reformed due to the self-improvement programs he completed while he was in prison and under the condition that he report to a parole officer every week. Alcala asked if he could travel to New York to visit relatives, which officials permitted. This is how, just days later, Rodney Alcala crossed paths with Christine Thornton somewhere along Interstate 80 near Rock Springs. We'll never know exactly what happened, where or when the two met, or how he was able to lure Christine onto the remote back roads of Sweetwater County. In spring of 2010, the Huntington Beach and New York City Police Departments released 120 of Rodney Alcala's private photographs and sought the public's help in identifying the people in them. They hoped that by releasing the photos to the public, that somebody might recognize the women or children that he photographed as additional victims. And they did. Dozens of living women recognized themselves in the photographs. And a handful of families came forward to police, saying they saw loved ones who had mysteriously vanished over the years in the pictures. Among those families was Christine Thornton's. Christine had made the trip north with her boyfriend, but somewhere around Green River, The two had a massive fight and actually went their separate ways at that point. For decades, Christine's family was certain that her boyfriend had killed her. Until one day in 2013 when Christine's sister, Kathy, received an email from her son. Not to stir the pot or anything, her son wrote, but I know you're always looking for closure and came across this photo gallery of a serial killer. If you recognize any of them, maybe that's a little closure. If not, then I'm sorry for stirring up old memories and pain. Kathy clicked on the link and began scrolling through the pictures. She scrolled right past that picture of her sister on the motorcycle. But then something made her stop. And she went back to picture number 86 in the gallery. Something about that photo. And she looked closer. And then she called the police. Detectives from Rock Springs flew out to California to interview Rodney Alcala, now in prison. They handed him a copy of that photo that he'd taken of Christine decades earlier. Without saying a word, Alcala traced the outline of her body with his finger. But he's never admitted to killing Christine, or any of his victims, for that matter. Serial killer Rodney Alcala's victim count is at least eight women, though it's very likely higher. Some have estimated that Alcala could have killed as many as 100 women from 1968 to 1979. He's currently in prison at the California State Prison in Cochrane. Alcala was sentenced to death in 2016, but the verdict was overturned by California's Supreme Court. Currently, he's 76 years old and in poor mental health. Although Rodney Alcala was charged with Christine's murder, authorities have decided not to extradite him to Wyoming to face a trial. He can die in California, the prosecutor said. Of his probably dozens of victims, 28-year-old Christine Ruth Thornton was the only person that Rodney Alcala ever killed in the state of Wyoming. As far as we know. If you're in the Riverton area, stop on in to Hampton Inn & Suites. Maybe take a staycation. But if you're enjoying Dead & Gone in Wyoming, let them know about it because they're helping to make it possible. And the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton is a gateway to adventure and located right in the middle of the Cowboy State. If you're within driving distance, take yourself a little getaway. The Riverton Music Jam is coming up November 7th. Just saying. And of course, there are attractions like Yellowstone, the Tetons, world-class skiing amazing cultural and historical sites, and not too far away from Independence Rock. There's all kinds of stuff to do in and around the Wind River Reservation. But no matter what time of year, Riverton has access to the best of Wyoming. And when you are in town, you're going to want to stay at the best. The Hampton Inn & Suites is conveniently located. They serve a free hot breakfast. Make plans to stay at the Hampton Inn & Suites in Riverton, Wyoming, and feel the Hamptonality. Part 2. The Highway to Heaven Truckers call it the Three Sisters. If you're driving eastbound on I-80, right about Evanston, there are basically three hills that you can see laid out for miles in front of you, the highway snaking over the top. It can be a beautiful sight, but the truth is, truckers have a name for this spot on I-80, not because it's scenic, but because it can be extremely dangerous. The Three Sisters is a notoriously bad stretch of road on I-80. With just about any amount of snow on the ground, the crosswinds create almost instantaneous blizzard conditions. But if you catch the weather just right, and the visibility is good, you can see for miles. And in one spot in particular, the highway in front of you seems to rise into the clouds. It's called the Highway to Heaven. What is, at the same time beautiful, can also be treacherous. In 1985, David Lovely's mother was driving that road, moving from California to Massachusetts. And her son David had decided that he wanted to move east to live with her. He and his mother were joined by one of his sisters, and the three decided to make a road trip across the country out of the move. David's mother and sister would make the trip in a yellow rider truck, but 19-year-old David had just bought a motorcycle a couple of weeks before. It wasn't a brand-new bike, but it was near top of the line at the time, and David loved it. The prospect of a cross-country road trip, the freedom of the open road on his new bike, was too tempting for David, and he decided he would drive separately. The most important thing to understand about what happened next is to remember, if you can, what life was like before cell phones. 1985 was a world of landlines, phone booths, and calling cards. Today, to drive across Wyoming without a cell phone is almost irresponsible. But in 1985, there was no choice, and so here were a mother and her two children driving two separate vehicles across the country without the ability to communicate along the way, outside of when they stopped for gas or at a hotel for the night. For such a road trip, rest stops were ideal waypoints and maps or road atlases were the guide. David didn't want to drive behind the rental truck the whole time, so each day the three would decide on a landmark to meet at and stop for the night. David would ride ahead on his motorcycle and wait at the rendezvous point for his mother and sister to arrive. And to better communicate with each other, David and his mother would separately call another relative on the East Coast. One would leave a message with David's aunt, and she would pass it on to the other when they called the trio stopped to see the sights in Vegas and to swim in the Great Salt Lake. On August 4, 1985, the family parted ways again for the day, David on his new motorcycle and his sister and mother in the rental van. Later that same day, the van arrived at the rendezvous point. David's mother and sister waited for him, and waited, and waited for hours for David to arrive, and when he never did, they decided to stay there for the night. David's mother had no way of knowing that David was stranded along the side of the interstate that night. His bike had broken down, and he'd walked it along the highway about three miles to a truck stop near Fort Bridger. That's where David ran across a rough-looking man on a Harley. David did not get a good vibe, but he was also in a tough spot. In the middle of the night, with a motorcycle that didn't run, in the middle of nowhere. So reluctant as David was at first about Harley Man, who was a bit rough around the edges, David soon found that he was more than helpful. And not only did Harley Man repair David's bike, but actually got it running better than it had been before. David told all this to his aunt back east on August 5th, the day after he'd last seen his family. He told her how he'd had to spend the night on the side of the road, how his bike broke down, about Harley Man, and he told his aunt, almost frantically, that he just wanted to find his mother and sister. David ended that call by telling his aunt that he was next headed to Rock Springs in a truck stop near there, about 80 miles west, and that if she heard from his mother and sister, she should tell them to meet him there. David was heard from once more. After arriving in Rock Springs, he called his aunt's house again. She was out, but he spoke with his cousin. David said on that call that he planned to have a beer and wait for his mother and sister to arrive in Rock Springs. Again, David was 19 years old at the time, but in 1985, in Wyoming at least, it would have been legal for David to buy a beer. The drinking age wasn't increased to 21 until three years later. But that's not what made David's comments about wanting to buy beer unusual. What was strange about that comment is that David didn't drink, like, at all. For one thing, in his home state of California, it was illegal. More importantly, though, David had health problems that prevented him from drinking too much alcohol without risking some serious complications. David had endured major kidney surgery as a child, after which he'd spent nearly a year in the hospital. And he'd been warned as a young adult that drinking too much would be dangerous, and David never did. His family never saw him consume alcohol, even once. But apparently, waiting in Rock Springs for his mother and sister to arrive, David's plan was to buy a beer. And then again, on the open road, with the uh, typical 19-year-old temptations being what they might be, and in a state where it was, in fact, illegal to do so, who's to say David wouldn't have been inclined to have a beer or two? After that phone call, David disappeared. David's mother and sister continued on their trip. They weren't sure what else to do. They constantly called the family's contact point on the East Coast to see if David had checked in. After a day or two when he hadn't, they filed a missing persons report. Without knowing what might have happened to David, or without knowing how far east on I-80 he'd gone before it did, the missing persons report was filed in Lincoln, Nebraska. But David was technically an adult, and if there's one thing police everywhere have experience with, it's the erratic behavior of 19-year-olds. Nobody came forward to report a motorist in distress along the highway. None of his possessions were found, like his wallet or keys or clothes, nothing. And most of all, there was no sign of David himself or his prized motorcycle. Who knows where David Lovely was, but the fact that he hadn't talked to his mother in a couple of days doesn't constitute a missing person's emergency in the eyes of police. he'd turn up eventually, police thought. They always turn up eventually. David was tall and skinny, 6 foot 4 inches tall and about 160 pounds. Scarring on his stomach from the kidney surgery would have stuck out as well. And David was not street smart. There's just no other way to say it. In fact, the police report in his case says as much. Quote, David was described as studious and naive and had talked of sitting meditation and fasting on a mountainside. Unquote. So to say that a 6'4 Southern California Golden Boy on a motorcycle would have stood out a little bit in 1985 Rock Springs, Wyoming would be a serious understatement. David's family still hopes today that he stuck out enough that someone still might remember seeing him or hearing about him later. And he would have stuck out back then, too, but for different reasons as well. He would have made an easy mark. David is believed to have had on him, at the time, somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 or $150 when he disappeared in 1985. That's equivalent to more than $300 today. As is true with most interstates, I-80 through Wyoming has been noted for its increased crime rates and drug crimes compared to other areas. This was even more true of I-80 in Wyoming 35 years ago. In 1979, a man named Jeffrey Green was tortured and killed by somebody he knew. His body was left near I-80 in southwest Wyoming. Just a few months after David Lovely disappeared in 1985, the body of a missing 15-year-old girl was found on the interstate in Uinta County. But what had happened to David? Where had he disappeared? Nine days after last speaking with a family member, on August 14th, David's motorcycle was found on a dirt road just west of the Southwest Wyoming Regional Airport in Rock Springs. It's been erroneously reported in the years since that the motorcycle was found on South Baxter Road. There is such a road, but in fact, the bike was found south of Baxter Road, on a different road that leads off to a draw that goes east toward the airport. That's one of the facts about this case that persists as myth. David's motorcycle was found by a family of a husband, a wife, and two children who appear to have been, for want of a better term, camping in the area long term, basically living there illegally on airport property. The wife and the family discovered David's motorcycle in the remote location, she says, and she called her husband, who called the Rock Springs police right away. A quick-thinking Rock Springs detective remembered David's name from the missing person's teletype out of Nebraska a few days before and realized that the motorcycle found by the airport matched the description of the bike that David was last seen on. Police arrived to find the bike in relatively good condition, though a few thunderstorms over the previous week had washed away any possible fingerprints or other physical evidence. Some of David's belongings in a bag were reportedly propped up right up against the bike and the keys were left in the ignition. There was no sign of David or any of his items that might have been on his person at the time. No bike helmet, no wallet, and there was no money found at the scene. David's bike was a 1978 model 1,100 Yamaha motorcycle, 600 pounds wet and 90 horsepower. It was the first four-cylinder four-stroke that Yamaha ever produced. It was also one of the more popular. At the time, it was pretty high-end. The 1100 was described as a Rolls-Royce with a hemi motor. David's Yamaha had a maximum fuel tank range of 200 miles, and the tank was half full when it was found. This roughly matches up with the 80-mile ride from Fort Bridger, where David is believed to have last filled his gas tank. The family who found the motorcycle told police they'd been living at that location for several days at least, and they reported seeing a man with long hair leaving on an aquamarine-colored motorcycle on the same dirt road around August 9th or 10th, or about four or five days after David had been last heard from. But David has short curly hair, and his bike was more burgundy or maroon in color. Police have never determined who was riding that second motorcycle. Eventually, a ground search of the airport area around the bike was conducted. Law enforcement and volunteers searched by foot and by horseback for a few days. The search effort was able to find a large cardboard box that the family of four claimed that they had chained to David's bike in order to ride out those thunderstorms of the previous week. But no sign of David was found in the search. And nothing else ever has been. All that remains of David Lovely's disappearance now, some 35 years later, are questions. Who parked the bike in that remote location by the airport, leaving the keys in the ignition? Had it been David? And if so, what was he doing out there? David didn't drink, as we said, but he did enjoy marijuana. And his family admits that if David had met someone who had offered him some marijuana, he would have accepted, maybe even gone somewhere with that person. And because of David's physical kidney condition, a punch to the stomach could kill him. Was David's disappearance the result of a robbery gone wrong? Maybe, but if so, why not steal his relatively high-end motorcycle while you're at it? As missing person cases go, to disappear while you're driving is actually quite rare. Of course, it does happen, and some of those cases are solved. The Colorado beer baron Adolph Coors III from the 60s comes to mind. When it comes to Wyoming, probably the state's most famous such case was the disappearance of teenager Lisa Marie Kimmel. That case remained unsolved for 15 years, but eventually it was solved. Even rarer are the unsolved such cases. And when you hear those mysterious stories, they tend to stick with you. Paige Rinkoski in Michigan for me. And we told you the Wyoming story of Don Kemp in a previous episode. And Christine Thornton earlier in this one. But David Vernon Lovely, too, disappeared from the highway to heaven. And no trace of him has been found since. And his family, who are fellow listeners to this podcast, just like you, still believe that someone out there might know something about what happened to him. David was last known to have been in Rock Springs, Wyoming, on or around August 5, 1985. Once again, he was six-four, skinny, with short, curly blonde hair. That land around the dirt draw south of Middle Baxter Road, where his motorcycle was found, would likely be known only to somebody who was local or someone very familiar with the Rock Springs area. If you think you might have any information about David Lovely's disappearance, please reach out to the Sweetwater County, Wyoming Sheriff's Department at 307 872 6350 or the Wyoming Division of Criminal Investigation at 307 Dead and Gone in Wyoming is a production of Tencast and County10.com. And this month's episode was brought to you by the Hampton Inn and Suites in Riverton, Wyoming. My thanks again to them for helping to make this podcast possible. Some source credits for this episode I want to send a very special thanks to Elsie Schmelzer and her beautiful piece of work for the Casper Star Tribune on the Christine Thornton case. Additionally, the serial killer database at Radford University was used in the production of this episode. You might have seen a week or so ago a recent bonus episode that I recorded with Jared Anderson from TenCast, just talking about the series in general so far. That is something that we're thinking about doing, producing a small bonus episode to go along with every new episode in the main feed. So if you're interested in receiving that free bonus content, and if you have any theories or comments or questions about the episode, send an email to the email address that's in the show notes for this episode. So if we receive enough feedback from you guys, we may be releasing those short episodes to dive a little bit further into all these cases. So send a quick email to that address in the episode description. You might just hear your comment or question on an upcoming bonus episode. And keep that feedback about the show and suggestions for future episodes coming on social media. And those five-star ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts and elsewhere go a long way to helping others find the show. Sadly, we've reached the end of the trail for this month. So for Amanda Faring, Terry Wiblemo, Jared Anderson, Amanda Goddard, and Will Hill at County 10, I'm Scott Fuller. Already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.